Let's take our Bibles together this morning and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church during this time. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 1. So we've had the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. We can be reminded of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah. We've seen this pictured for us in John chapter 1 in such a clear way. We must remember that John is writing to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in him, we can have life through his name. Beginning in chapter, 19, uh, chapter 1 and verse 19, he called John the Baptist to the stand to give testimony to this fact. And then as we'll see this morning, beginning in verse 35 and going down through verse 51, he calls three more people to the stand to give their account and their testimony as witnesses that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and that all those who humble themselves and come to Jesus in faith will find forgiveness uh, forgiveness for sins and find life in his name. And so let's look together at verse 35. We'll read our text as it goes down through verse 51 as we see these three men that John calls to the forefront to give testimony and give witness as he calls them to the witness stand, the person and work of Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus, turning, saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or the rock which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Lord, as we look into your word, would you grant eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear, hearts that we may believe, and feet that we may obey. In your Son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we finish chapter 1 this morning, the first witness that the Apostle John calls to the witness stand is the disciple of Jesus by the name of Andrew. We see this in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. We first need to answer the question that you may have in your mind, and that is, I see the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. What's happening here? What are the, what's the chronology of these events? 
And I'd like to help you understand that John is not giving this chronology in this way so that you can know what date everything happened. Like if we look at the moon just the right way and we trace all the details just the right way, we find that when John, when, when Jesus was baptized, it was on, you know, April 12th and then two days later and then three days later and all this stuff. That's not why John uh, the apostle is giving these details. He's giving these details for you to recognize the fact that these happened in successful days in leading up to the Passover. You see, he's really aiming all the way towards chapter 2 and verse 13. The Passover at the, of the Jews was at hand. And so what he's saying is these days are happening in succession that Jesus has planned out through the revelation of God the Father in his perfect knowledge to plan that the Lamb of God would be revealed in preparation for the Passover. So when you see these phrases the next day, we should be seeing these as a purposeful ordering of events that build on each other day by day by day to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. And so in verse 36, we see, that John the Baptist once again looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And at this point, you may think John the Baptist may be a one-trick pony, and that may be his only message. You know, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. And it is true that the concept of every message of John the Baptist that we know about was that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. However, when, when he's pointing his finger at Jesus, what he wants you to see is he continually wants you to see that he's drawing the attention away from himself and placing it on Jesus. You see, John the Baptist had followers. They were called disciples of John, and you see that referenced here. But the disciples of John were only disciples of John until Jesus was revealed and then he transferred them to be disciples of Jesus. John was not amassing a following for himself. He's constantly pointing at Jesus and say, only follow me as much as you're following him. He's the one who will stand in as the sacrifice, as we saw last week, the substitute, the Savior, sent from God to restore the relationship of God's people to himself. But we need to look back at the verse 35 and ask a question. John draws our attention to two of his disciples. That is two of John the Baptist's disciples. Who were these two disciples? One of them is given to us later on. We see that, um, that we, one of them is referenced as being Andrew, but the other one is not given a name. More than likely, this is the author of the gospel, the Apostle John himself, later referenced as the one whom Jesus loved. John, in his humility, does not bring in himself by name in, these apostle, in, in this apostle, I'm sorry, in this um, gospel, but the Apostle John references, he kind of gives the reader a clue. He says, listen, I was there. And that's why I can say it was the 10th hour. That's why I can say this is exactly what happened on consecutive days. And so we see John the Apostle here acting as a first-hand testimony with Andrew to this first account. Jesus asks these two apostles a very interesting question. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following. By the way, if we had time, if I could preach this passage of Scripture four or five times, which I kind of did with Pastor Ben's sermon, but that's a different story. But uh, if I could preach this passage of Scripture four or five times, one of my messages would be to trace through Every time John uses this literary technique of seeing, Jesus saw, they saw, they said, come and see. And over and over again, if you want to trace that through and spend some time in prayer and meditation on the theme, it's a fascinating theme. And so Jesus saw them and following said to them, here would be my third sermon on this passage, the question, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Such an interesting question from Jesus, isn't it? It's the same question that Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus in Luke 18 and in the Gospel of Mark. Where 
this blind man is running through the streets, yelling and screaming and following the crowds, casting off his cloak, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus after they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking a question. Why are you coming to Jesus? Why are you here? Friends, I think this is a question that we all need to spend time thinking about and that I'd like to spend a brief moment on in my sermon this morning. And the question is this, what do you want from Jesus? Why are you here? Why did you come to Christ? Why are you coming to be saved? Friends, this perhaps is a question that needs to be asked in all evangelistic efforts when one expresses the desire to be saved. For it is this question that may protect one from a false conversion. It is this question that could prevent you from standing before Christ after you die or in eternity after Christ returns and Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. And you say, but I did, I did works of faith in your name and I, and I prayed and I sang hymns and I went to church. What are you seeking? Do you want wealth? Friend, are you here because it's a good atmosphere? You know, it's the only place I can come church and not be bombarded by the things of the world and so this is just my one oasis and that's what I want out of Jesus I want I want an hour and a half of peace every Sunday morning what are you seeking are you seeking wealth are you seeking peace are you seeking prosperity friend if we're not careful we can reject the Joel Osteen prosperity gospel and buy into some other prosperity gospel that says as long as you live for Christ, your life's going to be okay. As long as you do what is right, everything's going to be good. And when good things happen, you say God is blessing. And when bad things happen, you say Satan's attacking. Are you here because you want prosperity? Did you get saved because you want a good life? Did you accept Jesus because you just wanted him to make your life better? What are you seeking? I told you, this could be a whole message. Are you seeking protection? Protection from eternal torment and hell? Like, I don't really want Jesus as my king, but I just don't want to go to hell. I want some sort of card that's going to give me a get-out-of-hell-free card or some sort of fire insurance for eternity, and I have no desire to live for God. I have no desire to be a new creation. I don't want Jesus. I want Him to get me out of hell. And so I'll pray whatever prayer you want. I'll say whatever I need to say. So I just don't end up there. Friends, what are you seeking Andrew and John took this question very seriously. They recognized that it wasn't enough for a quick answer. And so what did they say? Hey, where are you staying? Because I think we need to talk about this. You ask me what I'm seeking. The answer is a little bit longer than some pithy answer. Where are you staying? And so they say to him, Rabbi, in verse 38, where are you staying? And in verse 39 he says, come and you will see. I wonder if Jesus meant more than just, you'll see the room that I'm staying in. You have a question about who Jesus is? Come. You'll see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, verse 39, for it was about the tenth hour. They didn't just flippantly say, hey, we'll take whatever you got. You look like a great guy. Whatever you're selling, I'm buying. So it doesn't really matter what I'm seeking. I just... We'll take whatever you offer. They didn't flippantly decide to follow Christ. They recognized that if Jesus truly was the Messiah, it would impact their life in every way. Choosing to follow Jesus is not like walking down the ice cream aisle at Martin's and picking out your favorite flavor. 
Did you know that in South Bend, just south of, of, of our church here, we actually have a visual representation of a parable that Christ has given? You know, Christ gives, um, all of his parables are just everyday examples. And he actually gives a parable in Luke, four, Luke 14 that is an everyday example that we can actually see. If you drive down Miami and you pass, you go past New Road, um, and, and after you stop at the stop sign, because that one sometimes catches you off guard, and you just keep going, there's another stop sign further on. I don't know the name of the road, but some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I mention it. You stop at the stop sign on Miami, you're going south, and you look up, and there's a house that was never finished. It looks like they got the windows on. In fact, it, on, on the second level, there's actually a sliding glass door with no deck unbelievably dangerous like there's a lot of work that needs to go into that house to be finished several years ago they got it wrapped and it looked like they were going to put siding on it but then they didn't and now the the home wrap is all peeling off shredding why did they not finish the house i don't know is it that the person who was building it had a medical emergency or perhaps passed away Is it that someone else decided, you know, the lot's not really worth it, there's a lot of traffic? Is it because they ran out of money? Luke chapter 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, we could add to that, put up the framing, installed windows and wrapped the house in Tyvex or whatever that stuff's called. He's not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, deliberate whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the others yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be you a disciple. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't take conversion lightly. That's what he's saying. Oh Lord, you can have all. Really? Lord, I humble myself, I lay down, I want you as my rescuer. Really? What are you being rescued from? I don't know, but I'm sure I have some problems. I have financial problems. God's going to be my rescuer. He's going to be my savior, and he's going to save me from my financial problems. No, probably, actually, he won't. I'm sick. I need need a rescuer. I need someone to, to, to fix me in my physical health. Lord, be my savior and fix my physical health. And he doesn't. And so you have lots of false converts who said, I've tried Jesus, and it just didn't work. And so we say what we say often here at Community, you may have tried a Jesus, but you did not try my Jesus, friend. For Andrew and John took this seriously. And Jesus said, what are you seeking? Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? If you're here and you've made a profession of faith, can I ask you a question very seriously this morning? What were you seeking? Does God have your heart? I'm not asking if you pray to prayer. Friend, one of the deepest fears that I have as a pastor is that that I'll serve here for so many years and that somebody in our church family wouldn't be saved. That you would go through service after service after service and you would take communion and you would sing and you would miss Jesus because you never thought about it. And so I ask you, what are you seeking? Are you seeking someone who can forgive your sin and meet your deepest need or do you just want to get out of hell? Do you want Jesus for his benefits? Or do you embrace him as your Lord? As your King? Have you come to him in humility? Laying down everything at the feet of Jesus. Studying through the book of Daniel, and it's amazing that Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, they see 
Jesus. I mean, they see God's power lived through Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And every time, right, they say, wow, look at Daniel's God. Wow, look at their God. Isn't he powerful? And at one time, you know, Nebuchadnezzar even says, if anybody worships any God but their God, you know, you're, we're going to throw you in prison. And yet still Nebuchadnezzar stands later, maybe 10 years later, and says, look at this Babylon that I've created. And what does God do? He turns him into an animal and sends him into the field. Because even though Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God was powerful and God was incredible and God was amazing, he was God, but he wasn't his God. So if you're going to study Daniel chapter 6, you see Nebuchadnezzar finally bowing his knee and in, keyword humility, coming before the Most High God. And here, Andrew and, Jan- Andrew and John didn't want to get it wrong. So they took their time. What was the answer that they found? Well, can you imagine sitting down with Jesus all evening and just asking him questions? Asking him to help you understand. Can you imagine sitting with Jesus and saying, can you help me understand the Old Testament? Help, help me understand how, what, what about this sacrifice? How did that, how did you fulfill that? What about these promises? What about, what about Abraham? Talk to me about Abraham and, and, and the covenant. How, how is that fulfilled in you? And having Jesus explain like a second road to Emmaus. Here we have Jesus unfolding for these two disciples of John the Baptist. How Jesus fulfills everything that God has promised. And friend, yes, there may be some who come to Christ in a moment of not ever hearing the gospel and then hearing the gospel. There may be those. And surely, I am not negating salvation experiences at all. But for those who have no concept of God or Jesus or the Bible or sin at all, and for a 10-second gospel presentation to result in a prayer of salvation, most of the time would be insignificant for genuine conversion. And so Andrew, after sitting down with John and hearing the message of Jesus, comes in verse 40. Let's see Andrew's confession. When the two heard John speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew... One of the two was Simon Peter's brother, and he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. What did he do? He took Peter and he said, we found him, the Messiah. And Peter's like, you mean, and, and, and through that word, the whole Old Testament floods into Peter's mind. And, and, and Andrew says, come see him. Come see him. So he brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, you are going to play an amazing role in the early church. And so we see in Matthew chapter 16 how Jesus renames Peter Rock. You are Petros, and, and you are a rock. But friends, that doesn't mean that Peter was perfect. If you know anything about the New Testament and the Gospels, you know Peter's not perfect. You know he rejects Christ. You know he runs from Christ. You know he acts out of anger and tries to defend Christ with a sword and lops off Malchus's ear. He's a hothead. You know he's passionate. You know he doesn't have problems. And isn't that so just comforting that God uses broken, willing people? It's not an excuse to sin. May it never be so. But friend, it's a comfort that we can be used of God mightily, all of us, because we're broken people, willing to be used by God. And so Jesus gives Peter a new name. He calls him the rock. He will stand as a rock in the early church. He will give his life as a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Andrew's given witness to Jesus that he's the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Let's look at the second, call our second witness to the stand here that John the Baptist gives us, and his name is Philip. Philip, 40, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip's conversion is different than Andrew's and John's. Everybody's conversion is different. 
For the first two, they were actively seeking to discover who the Messiah was. They sought Jesus out. For Philip, Jesus walked up to him and looks at him and says, you follow me. And for some of you, you were led by God on a, on a journey of seeking. That you knew something was missing in your heart. And maybe you tried three or four different things. And as your heart was pulled and your heart was pulled, you were seeking Jesus. You were seeking Jesus. And for others of you, you were invited to some service by a coworker or by a friend. You listened to an explanation of the gospel. Things started to click in your mind. And it was like God hit you with a two by four. Bam! Follow me. And everybody's experience is different. But what we have to understand is that though everybody's experience is different, there are many ways that people come to the one way to heaven. We need to recognize that no matter your case, any desire that you would have for spiritual things comes from God. That whether it was God drawing you in a, in a 20-minute gospel presentation, a 30-minute sermon, an explanation of the gospel that planted a seed in your heart of, of God the Father drawing, or if it was years and years and years of the Father slowly pulling you in. Romans chapter 3 tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so you have this picture that God is pulling people to himself. And for some, he lassos them and jerks them in. Follow me. And for others, it's that slow, consistent draw. But even though they look different, it's the same call. It's the call to follow Christ. It's a rescuing call. This call is a salvific call. This is the call to salvation. This is not some second call as if you need to first be saved and then later on you're going to somehow be called to be a follower of Christ. This isn't some sort of second plateau or second blessing. It isn't as though one day you get saved and the next day you decide to follow Christ. This is the moment of Philip's salvation. It is a salvific gospel rescuing call. If you are saved, you are a follower of Christ. Now you might not be a very good follower of Christ, right? But there's not some sort of second blessing you've got to receive. You are a follower of Christ, and this word follower is the same word disciple. When we talk about discipling, that's helping other people follow Christ. When we talk about discipleship, that's your own personal following of Christ. Because from the moment of salvation, it's not just a salvific call, but it's a continual call. If you look at this word and the way Jesus uses it, it is a call, it is a command, a call to faith, that is a continual action. In other words, Jesus is saying, come, follow me, and never stop. It's a salvific call. It's a rescuing call. It's a, it's a continual call. Now, it's not continual salvation. You don't need to be justified every day. You don't need to be saved every day. But friend, it's a continual call to follow Jesus. So Jesus looks at him and says, Follow me. And so what is Philip's testimony in verse 44? Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. It's not by accident. He looks at these two who will later be known as Bonarges, the sons of thunder, right? Some of you were like me, and you could have been called that in your childhood. That's a son of thunder right there. These boys were not, these were not boys that you would miss in the town. Okay, they were probably the ones pranking everyone. They were probably the ones who were going around that were the loudest and causing the most ruckus. And now Peter and, and Andrew are, are following this Jesus. And so Philip was also from Bethsaida. And Philip went. And what did he do? He did the same thing Andrew did. Andrew went and got Peter and said, you got to see this. And so now Philip goes and he gets Nathaniel. And what does he say to Nathaniel? We found him. 
We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We, we found the Messiah. And it's, you'll never guess, it's, it's this carpenter from Elkhart. Yeah. Like this carpenter from Elkhart became the president. What? Yeah, it was great. He grew up working on RVs. And he doesn't have a formal education. That, that's, what they, that's what would be happening here, okay? And so, and so Nathaniel goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, is there anybody there who actually can do math? Right? And that, that, if you live in Elkhart, that was not a ditch to Elkhart. We've now moved on to Nazareth. I'm just saying, it's a small city. It's a small city. And you say, man, I thought that Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. And Nathaniel's putting all these things together. I, I thought Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. You said Nazareth? I mean, Messiah? Yeah. Because perhaps Jesus is different than you think he is. And so Philip asks the question. He protests. Or, I'm sorry, Nathaniel protests. Philip says, this is the one we're looking for. He's the one. I'm telling you. He's the one. This is it. Nathaniel protests. He could have been referring to the prophecies. Uh, some would say that he's even referring to the fact that Jesus appeared to be born out of an illegitimate union between Mary and Joseph because they weren't married. Remember, Mary uh, conceives of the Holy Ghost. She goes to see Elizabeth for a couple of months. She comes back and everybody goes, you look different. And it's not just the glow. You've got something here. And Joseph has this identity crisis when he realized that Mary's pregnant and everybody in Nazareth knew that Jesus was the product of that. We see that reflected a little bit later on, even with the Pharisees and the way they treat Jesus, and, and, and they're talking down to him. So it could be that he's thinking that. It could be, I, I just think he's talking about the insignificance of this little town, you know? And then Philip gives the invitation. I love this. Philip said to him, What did Philip say? Come and see. Come and see. You're not going to believe it. But if I can just get you there, maybe you'll see. If you can just hear what I've heard, you'll see. Come and see. Philip's answer is so simple, isn't it? See for yourself. Examine the evidence. My mind immediately went to the story of Lee Strobel and the case for Christ a seasoned journalist at the Chicago Tribune whose wife became a believer and he positioned himself against Christianity and tried to prove his wife wrong by simply following the facts as a journalist does, but in the course of following the facts, he saw. He saw the truth. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, examine the facts. Look at Scripture. I mean, ask good questions. Jesus can stand up to any question you have. There's no question you can ask that scares God. And there's nothing in Scripture that you need to be afraid of. And so come and see. Come and see for yourself. And then let's look at Nathaniel's testimony in verse 47. So Philip brings Nathaniel. Nathaniel's coming towards him. Jesus says something very interesting. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So let's first look at Nathanael's character. The first statement from Jesus is in regard to Nathanael's character. Jesus' comment about him is maybe confusing to begin with until we understand what Jesus is saying here. What does Jesus mean that he's an Israelite indeed? You know, Peter came and Andrew and Philip. And if you look back in their lineage, you know, their great-grandmother married someone who wasn't a real Israelite. And so when I look at these three, they're not true bloods, right? They're, they're They're not truly Israelites, but Nathaniel, 
He's, he's a pure-blooded Israelite. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying. If you look at the words Israelite indeed in the original language, those words are flipped and it says uh, true Israelite. That he is an Israelite that is characterized by the, by the word alethe, truth. And it's the word that is used throughout Scripture to reference doctrinal truth. In other words, there, there are many opinions, but this is the one that is right. This is reality. So in Romans chapter 2, we see uh, an interesting parallel here. And then I believe that what Jesus is referencing in Nathaniel's heart is that Nathaniel was a genuine believer of God. He was a genuine follower of God. He's putting him in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are hypocrites, right? He looks at the Pharisees and he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You're pretty on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. But he sees Nathaniel and he says, true Israelite, that you are a genuine follower of God, that you understand what this is all about. Friend, can that be said of you? You're a genuine follower of God. Romans chapter 2, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, verse 28, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, from of God. And so we see that Romans chapter 2 is a beautiful cross-reference to exactly what Jesus is referencing here, that he sees Nathanael and he says not only is he a physical Jew, but he's a true Israelite. He is part of the family of God. He knows the real reason for the sacrifices. He's placed his faith and trust in the revelation that God has given. He's trusting in the mercy of God and God alone. And so thus he is a genuine believer. It's a reminder for us that family lineage and physical characteristics have nothing to do with your salvation, friend. For the Word of God tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but God looks on your heart, for God cares for your heart, because out of your heart spring everything in life. And so a true believer is one who is a genuine believer from the heart. It's his character. Let's look at his calling in verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? You said I'm a true Israelite. You've never even seen me before. Jesus from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know? How do you know me? There's been a lot of ink spilt from theologians about Jesus' answer here. Let's look at it and we'll see what Jesus is saying. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel's genuinely curious. How do you know me? And Jesus gives him an answer that's a little bit more than he bargained for. You were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, there are a lot of different opinions on what this means. I'll give you a couple. Augustine, early Augustine, said that the fig tree is Nathaniel sitting in his sin. So Jesus is saying, like, 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 the fig, like the fig leaves that covered Adam and Eve, try to cover their sin, right? He's saying, when you were covered by the fig tree in your sin, I saw you, and then you became a genuine Israelite, so I've known you both as a sinner and as a believer. That's early Augustine. Later Augustine would say that the fig tree is actually the temptations of the world. When you are fighting temptations as a Christian, sitting under the fig trees of temptation, I saw you. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. The Syriac tradition would go even further and say that um, somehow Nathaniel was placed under the fig tree by his mother when Herod was massacring all the children, and thus he was protected by God under this fig tree. And so Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree as a baby. I've known you from a child. I knew, know that you would follow me. I think that sounds very wonderful and romantic. I just don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. So there really are two common viewpoints. The first one would say that at some time in a, in a faraway place, Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree. And because Jesus is truly God, Jesus knew that he was there. He knew that he was there in his omniscience. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree either in some previous day 
or in some faraway place, and, he, and nobody else knew that Nathanael was under the fig tree. And so Jesus then says, I saw you under the fig tree. And the emphasis would be on I. I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael thought maybe he was hiding, or maybe he was by himself, and nobody else knew he was there. And because of that, he knows Jesus is God. That's a legitimate interpretation. It's not the interpretation that I would, that I would think is most likely here, but that is a legitimate interpretation. And if you, if you believe that, that's great. My opinion would be, and I'm going to step from behind the pulpit, I often do this when I share my opinion. Um, my opinion would be that Jesus saw Nathaniel under the fig tree before Philip got him. Is that either he's walking into town or, or something and he sees Nathaniel and the father. Remember, Jesus' deified mind is veiled by his humanity. He's truly man. And so revealed to him through the Father, through the Holy Spirit, through which he is in constant contact with, because he has no sin nature, it's revealed to him as he walks into Galilee that Nathaniel is going to be one of his followers, and he sees him under a fig tree. And then Philip comes to him, and he runs and he gets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel comes back and he tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. Before Philip even told you I was here, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, either one of those gets you to the same conclusion, and that is that Jesus has special revelation from the Father and thus is evidencing his deity. And Nathaniel recognizes that the information that Jesus has, whether it's, I was at a fig tree earlier, nobody else knew I was there, only God could know, or you knew that I would follow you, you knew that I would come, you must be God. It's a direct revelation from the Father, and thus Nathaniel confesses in verse 49 two things. Rabbi, look with me down at verse 49, you are the Son of God. And secondly, you are the King of Israel. You are the one we've been waiting for. And if you, if you notice each one of these confessions Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel have a common theme, and that is they are placing themselves on a lower plane, and they are humbling themselves before the God of creation, and they are saying, you are higher than I am. You are the Messiah. You are the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. You are the Son of God, the King in Israel. And thus, these three testimonies, as we look at them, all are testimonies of genuine conversion. Jesus goes in verses 50 and 51, and he gives Nathaniel and the other disciples that are there confidence that this is just the beginning. Look at verse 50. Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And if you want to paraphrase the end of verse 50, it would say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. You think that was power from God? You just wait. And then Jesus steps back and he addresses all of the disciples. You, it's hard to see in our English version. It's actually easier to see in the King James with the Old English when they use thee and thou and you and ye. But in verse 51, when he says, I say to you, you will see heavens open, that's actually plural. In the South, we'd give a good y'all, right? If you're from Michigan, you may say youin, or whatever, you know, Northerners say, youins. Use guys, if you're from New England. It's a plural, you all. And so Jesus then speaks to Nathaniel and he says, if you think that that was glory from God displayed in my divine knowledge, you wait till you see what's coming. And he steps back and he says to his disciples the following statement, truly, truly, I say to you, this is a true statement that will come true and you need to pay attention. You will see the heaven opened and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending and you expect him to say on the ladder or on the staircase just as Jacob did between heaven and earth, but he doesn't. He says, you will see them descending on the Son of Man. 
And, and with this phrase, um, once again, there are a lot of people who, ta- who would interpret these phrases differently. Some would see this as Jesus saying, you will see me lifted up on the cross and, and the angels ministering to me while I'm on the cross. I don't think he's referencing that. I think what he's drawing their attention back to is Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob was running from Esau and God gave him a vision looking into heaven, seeing angels walking up and down on this staircase, this ladder to heaven. And Jacob then turns and he says, this place is the presence of God. And what Jesus is saying, you are going to see God. You're going to see God. Just like Jacob saw the very presence of God and the angels going up and down from heaven, so you, through the Son of Man, through me, Jesus says, you're going to see God. You're going to see it on full display. Referencing the Son of Man, again, he's, we'll discuss this more in coming weeks, but he's referencing Daniel chapter 7 and the glory and authority given to him by the Father. Three testimonies of faith, all aligning under the authority of God as they rightfully see him for who he is. And friends, when you see Jesus for who he is, there is only one proper response, and that is to align under his authority and align under his glory and to see him as God and flesh. Two closing applications. Number one, I'd like to ask you the question that we saw at the very beginning, and that's this. What are you wanting from God? This was Jesus' question to Andrew and John, and it's a question that you need to answer. Follow Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he asks, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. What are you looking for? Are you looking for the king of the universe through which you can throw your life down and serve him all your days, find forgiveness of sins, and thus entrance into the Father's glory for all of eternity where you can continue serving God? And for some of you, you're like, if I have to serve God for all of eternity, it doesn't sound like heaven very much because I want to do what I want to do. Or did you come to Jesus in faith? Did you cast your all on the altar? Did you come to Him as your Lord and Savior to the name that is above all names? Did you humble yourself and lay your life down at the foot of the cross and say, there is a God and I am not Him. And so I come in service to Him. What do you want from Jesus? Humility is required for salvation. Number two, the pattern that we see in this passage should be the normative pattern for evangelism. Don't you love this? Hey, come and see. I found something you're never going to believe. Come and see. You got to come and see Jesus. Andrew goes and he gets his brother I want to introduce you to Jesus. Philip goes and he gets his friend Nathaniel. I want you to come see Jesus. Over and over again, friends. Can I share my heart with you? There are people that God is calling to salvation and he could use you to simply say, come and see. Come and see. We don't bear the burden of evangelism like, oh my goodness, if I don't explain the gospel just right, their blood's going to be on my hands. No, friends, we serve so much of a bigger God than that. But he wants to use you to accomplish his mission of salvation. He wants to use you to share the gospel. He wants to use you to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you could play a role in grabbing someone's hand, literally, I mean, figuratively, not literally, right? And saying, come and see Jesus. I've been forgiven of my sins. You're not going to believe the God that I serve. You should serve him too. Friend, you can have freedom in this life. Friend, you can find forgiveness from your sin. Would you come and would you see Jesus? 
Would you see the God that I serve in all of his beauty and all of his glory as the creator of the universe? Would you just come and see? And may God give us the grace to live out that mission, to make disciples of all nations. It just means followers. Come and see, friend. Would you put a name to your lifestyle at work? Would you go over to your neighbors and invite them to dinner? They may think you're crazy. Say, listen, we made... Tomorrow, I'm planning on making more dinner than we can eat, and we'd love someone to share it with. Do you want to come over for dinner? No, i got dinner plans. So would you like to come over for dessert? Because I can make a big cake, or I can buy a big cake. No, we don't eat sweets. I have coffee. Would you just come and see? Would you come and see my Jesus? Because he's worth your life. We follow him together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful passage that shows us the clear picture of what a genuine believer looks like and the responsibilities of every believer. That we would open up our mouths and with our lives tell others to come and see Jesus. Would you give us the grace and the humility and the strength to be obedient to that command, to carry the greatest message, the best news that anyone could ever receive. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, friend, would you do business with God as he's stirring in your heart? Whatever God wants you to think about now is what he's laid on your heart. And in this time, before we enter back into the busyness of the day, before we go back into everything that's, that's waiting for us, could we just pause for a minute, do business with the Lord, and would you fellowship with Him in your seat, respond to Him in prayer in this moment of silent response and reflection as the Lord leads you. thank you for being a friend of sinners welcomes them and they come in faith would you strengthen us to do your will in your name we pray amen